Welcome everybody back to our podcast, Change Starts Here. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. I am honored today to have the guests that we have. Uh, for those of you who have been around education, which are most of our listening audience, uh, viewing audience, it's someone who has inspired so many people to go into teaching, to stay into teaching, to rethink their mission for teaching, for leading schools, for leading districts. Um, and personally, it's a story I haven't actually shared with her yet. Um, I decided uh, towards the end of my college to become a teacher, part because of my own personal experiences of seeing inequity out there uh, in the community and seeing that uh, too many people's futures were dictated by the zip code that they were born into. Uh, but secondly, because I read this book that the, our, our guest had. And so I would not be here today uh, in a small part without Aaron Gruel. And so I'm so excited for you to be here today. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. It, I want to say, wow, first and foremost, that a book that we facetiously called the little book that could in honor of the train going down a track, um, made its way out of my classroom and into the world and into your hands. And that's, that's, a, that's an amazingly humble place for us to start. Yeah, well, I would say one of the things that uh, helped uh, re resonated with me, yes, the story that we'll dive into was kind of your, your journey into deciding to be a teacher. I had gone to school and majored in finance. So I had really, at the time I decided to become a teacher, it was not a part of my life's plan. And mm -hmm. so, and I, I was struggling for the courage to kind of make that decision or the beliefs and convictions that you've talked about. Can you just give us some insight and remind us what was that decision like? And uh, how did you get here? Or how did you get into teaching? You know, it, it, was a, it was a strange time. I, I had parents who were activists and, and I know that we, we hear that word a lot, but I, I was really blessed to have role models that that always spoke up and always were able to stand up for what my father called the underdog. Um, you know, his career was actually in professional baseball, but he always claimed that he named me after Hank Aaron. And I, I actually had the opportunity to meet Hank Aaron years later, which was uh, surreal. But I love that Hank Aaron was one of those courageous people to help integrate baseball and it, and it wasn't easy and it wasn't always safe. And so growing up, I, I, I think I always assumed that I would do something that would give people opportunities and a voice, but I thought I would do it in a very different form. I thought I, thought I was going to be a lawyer and I went off to college planning to be a lawyer. I studied classes to be a lawyer. And in the early nineties, Los Angeles was struggling. We had the the Rodney King riots, which was very disconcerting for all of us who watched it and and lived through it. You know, our entire community was held hostage, and the National Guard was brought in, and everything stopped. And I think that was a moment that was really telling because it was at the beginning of that 24-hour news cycle. We're, we're kind of desensitized to that 24-hour news cycle now. But then um, one of the images that was really striking was all the imagery of children who clearly were not in school. N you know, we couldn't go to work, we couldn't go to school. And what the kids were watching and then doing, you know, watching an older brother, cousin, father, pick up a Molotov cocktail, throw it at a building, and then, and then looped. And it made me think of my own father, that if I could sit around a dinner table with my dad and talk about civil rights, what were the conversations that were happening in those homes? And at that moment, I thought, I, I don't want to be a lawyer because then it's very reactionary. I'd rather do something that's proactive. And that's right around the time that I, I made that shift that I wanted to go from being a lawyer to being a teacher which was a really tough conversation to have with my father, who, like so many fathers, um, did not feel that it was safe in the community I wanted to teach. Economically, he was afraid that, you know, are you going to be able to have the, the lifestyle you, you are accustomed to? So it was, it was uh, 
a difficult conversation and it made me more resolute to want to teach, but it wasn't always embraced. Yeah, I, I completely identify with that story. When I called my father uh, after my junior year and I looked like I was going down the path that most finance majors go, and I just told him, I feel so convicted to be a part of the solution for the inequity that we have in our country. And I'm going to go teach and I'm going to move mm -hmm. to St. Louis, Missouri, where I know nobody. And honestly, part of it was hearing your story because I, as, as encouraging as your father's advice was, and my father's definitely, they want the best for us. And I love them so much for it. So much advice has gotten us here. Uh, I didn't really, and I told my dad the other day, I didn't really like the advice of, you got to think about what you can afford. Like that's, to me, it's about the impact that we have and the legacy we live or we, and we leave for folks. And so that's where I want to be making my decisions. Unfortunately, you lived in California. I was in St. Louis. So when I made my choice, I was able to have, you know, just my one job. I believe you had one or two other jobs while you were teaching. Is that true? I did. Uh, at critical mass, I think I had three additional jobs, um, which I don't recommend to anybody. But it was um, a way for me to be able to do some of the things that I, I knew would move the dial. So I started out working at a department store at Nordstrom's. I worked at uh, the Marriott as a concierge. And then eventually I started teaching uh, night school at a university. So I was definitely juggling and I don't even know how to juggle. So it, it was crazy making at, at, at best but it was a way for me to to buy books for my students to take them on field trips to allow them to see the world beyond their borders because a lot of my students had never traveled outside of the confines of our city and that just gave me liberation you know i, I can afford that bus mm. and i also was I, I also was very timid and afraid i i didn't know how to ask for the things I wanted. Eventually when I created relationships with my superintendent, I would start asking and he would say, well, why didn't you come to me before? Why are you, you know, we have a yellow school bus. Why are you trying to pay for transportation? Or we have a storeroom of books. Why are you, why are you buying them from Barnes and Noble? I just was so intimidated and, and nervous of rejection that I just thought if I work extra hard, then I can afford these things on my own which is not advice I would give to anyone. Um, so that, that, that was what I, that's why I kind of teased it out because for me, it goes, it goes two places. Um, first, I, I, even though it's not advice you want to give out, we know there are phenomenal teachers out there who are doing similar things to serve their kids. So if you could tell us a little bit about the benefits of going through that pain. And then secondly, none of us want our teachers having to take extra time you know, outside of their teaching profession to do those things just so they can be even better teachers. And so I do want to know what your, what your encouragement is for district leaders and board members and policy setters for how do we make sure that teachers aren't put in that position in the future. So the first question again is, if I'm a teacher and I'm making those same choices right now, is there light at the end of this tunnel? Because it, it feels really tough sometimes. I, I, I'm a shameless optimist. I, I do believe there's always light and there's always hope. So for all of those teachers, yes. I, I think for me, in in my very toxic teacher's lounge, um, that was a very individual experience. Um, I heard things that, that no educator should hear. And that that banter was not about equity or about equality. And that was it was really hard for me to swallow because I wanted and needed to believe that education is based on meritocracy. And there was some intrinsic racism percolating in, in our midst from people with power, which was, was difficult for me to understand. And so when I, would, when I would hear words like, your kids are stupid, your kids are dumb, these are exact quotes, uh, your kids can't read a book, and things were withheld, you know, be it, the Diary of Anne Frank or, or Night by Ellie Wiesel. I realized that it came to a point where I thought I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission because somehow, some way I, I want my students to find the power of words in a book. And 
by having a brand new book, the sense of ownership was, was something really exciting for my students. They weren't, you know, the watered down versions that were in our, our teacher's lounge anyways. So at first I, I felt like I hit kind of a glass ceiling. I, I would ask for things, uh, books or, or field trips or the ability to bring in guest speakers. And I was told no at first by my English department or the English chair or, or eventually the principal. It, it wasn't until later that I met the superintendent and was definitely intimidated. I was so intimidated by the hierarchy and the power structure. And then later on, I met the, the school board members because I, I, in my mind, I had an imposter complex then. I, I still fight that feeling to this day when I'm with people with power. So I, I didn't know how to ask. I just assumed that if this teacher said no, or this dean said no, or this principal said no, well, of course the superintendent's going to say no, or of course the, the board of education's going to say no. When they said yes, it was this euphoric eureka moment. And not only that, what I did is I, I invited them in, you know, be on that bus with us, meet that guest speaker with us, um, get a copy of that book with us. And it reminded my superintendent and the president of my board about why they got into education in the first place. Because they they said yes, they, they rode the bus with us. They sat in the front row when we had that guest speaker. They got a brand new copy of the Diary of Anne Frank. And that was an exciting process because our, our class was getting bigger because we were inviting people in. Um, so what I learned is that I worked really hard for those extra funds, which was exhausting. It was, you know, nights and weekends and holidays. And what I would recommend to any teacher is the power of asking um, and, and paying it forward and, and understanding the hierarchy within your system. Um, going to school board meetings and, and setting up a meeting with your principal and your superintendent and inviting them into the process. Um, because suddenly I learned I had to sell what and why we were doing it. And in, in selling it, you know, I'm not a salesperson, but I would find myself in my superintendent's office and I would just be crying. I was like doing the ugly Kim Kardashian cry, like snotty nose, like, you know, we, we want to go here, we want to do that. And, and he was emotional as well. And, and that was a, a beautiful experience that it was a constant reminder to him of who I was serving and how he too could be a servant leader. So you, that, this, this brings up a, a broader question. So my, my wife's a longtime educator and we always joke uh, that uh, rules can find me and probably much like you, where it's like, no, only inspires more of a yes. And we have so many great educators out there, like my wife, who are courageous as all can be, but are incredibly considerate when it comes to the power structures and making sure that they don't stick out. How would you help encourage an educator who I joke with my wife and call her sometimes too much of a rule follower, even though it's, she's with high integrity doing the right things? How would you encourage them to kind of get outside their comfort zone to be able to advocate for what they know they need for their kids? That's a great, I was a rule follower as well. You know, I, I was always very reverent to anyone with authority and to my own detriment, to be to be quite honest. But I, I do feel like I had this moral compass sometimes that when, when, when people say no and doesn't feel logical or practical, then I have this kind of inner righteous indignation that I, I, I want to, I want them to prove it to me. And I think what's really important is stepping out of your comfort zone. I feel like I step out of my comfort zone daily. So I'm, I'm always uncomfortable. But when you step out of your comfort zone and you get the yes, or you, you make that new relationship, there's no better feeling. It, it's so empowering. I, I often wear this shirt that says, empowered women empower women. And I, I love when people who have power can pay it forward and, and empower another. And I think that what I was then able to do is because someone who had power empowered me, then I could empower my students. And I always wanted my students to feel that you, you have a place at this table 
at any table. And, and when you sit at that table, I want you to feel like you belong. And so there was a lot of great people in my life who allowed me, even though I was scared and intimidated, to feel like I belonged. Mm. So to your point, uh, to take that a little bit further, the second part of the question I asked earlier was about what can school leaders do, district leaders do, and even policy setters do to um, uh, support teachers better to be able to serve their kids more so they don't have to have two or three jobs to serve their kids or so that those teachers feel empowered to go above and beyond and outside the box to serve their kids. Show up. Um, I can't tell you how many times Dr. Carl Cohen, my superintendent, would walk into my classroom in the midst of an assignment. It was harrowing and terrifying and liberating simultaneously. But I'd love that he you know, was the superintendent of a very large urban district of 98,000 kids. So that's a really large urban district. But he made his way to my classroom. He would sit through a lesson. He would raise his hand and ask questions. He would ride the bus with us. Um, to this very day, decades later, um, he is a text away and he, and he still shows up. And ironically, I, I began the podcast talking about those horrible riots in 1992. This summer with that social unrest, uh, we had riots yet again. And in Long Beach for a few days during that social protest was on lockdown. The National Guard was in our city. Um, buildings yet again were burning. So the Freedom Riders decided to mobilize and to do a Black Lives Matter conversation. Like what was actually happening? And we're all going to have different feelings, but let's just sit down and have a very courageous conversation. My superintendent, Carl Cohen, is African-American. And I reached out to him and I said, would you be willing to show up and be a part of this conversation? Um, we're going to agree to disagree. And he did. And I found myself feeling like that first year teacher in my early 20s, stammering and still nervous because he did show up. And I used to do that back then. I would invite him. And then it was like, be careful what you ask for because he'd come. Yet again, he, he was there. Um, so articulate and eloquent. And and once again, I felt like I was that student learning from him. So I would encourage every educator to just open your door, op an open door policy and invite people in to to see the magic to to capture lightning in a bottle and and to have it happen in real time yes it's intimidating because you you are going to get nervous that you're going to stammer and, and not dot every i and cross every t but when the magic happens and they catch it with you uh it is like psychic income mm. well one of the, you talk about, you know, capturing magic and coming to see the, the greatness that's happening uh, in your schools. I, one of the challenges of being a teacher, you know, I'm sure back when you were teaching, when I was teaching, now when uh, people are teaching is uh, a lot of times the district will have a set curriculum that they expect us to follow and a pacing guide. And so again, that courage and consideration comes in uh, you got to have strong beliefs and convictions to be able to honor the expectation of the pacing guide with, you know, setting that vision to create a magical space for your kids. How do we do that? What are your opinions on how to make that happen? You know, I was schooled in the halls of academia about how to teach to a test. And so I, I know about unfunded mandates and, and a curriculum that is um, coming from above. And I was scared, you know, and I, when I first began teaching, those, those were the expectations. And that can immobilize teachers and make them feel very robotic. And because I had severely vulnerable students um, who would have been considered at risk, I like the term at hope, but one of my most difficult students who actually was the character Ava in the feature film. And in reality, her name was Maria. She was courageous and feisty enough to challenge me and to say, teach to me, not to a test. And that was a liberating moment when I realized she's right. You know, there is not a one size fits all. There's so many different learning modalities that our kids bring into our classroom 
And so I, I have to break that mold because whatever I was doing wasn't working for her. You know, by the time she was 14, she'd been kicked out of every class and every school she'd ever attended, had an ankle monitor on her leg and had already been to juvenile hall and was assigned a probation officer. So what had happened in the past when people taught to attest, she fell through those cracks and she was part of that school to prison pipeline. And when she broke through to me, I realized I too am doing her, her disservice if I'm not teaching to her. And I had to adapt. I think we all need to adapt and be flexible. And I think that's the power of not being tied down or tethered to a test score or grades or data. Yeah, I think, so one of the things that you said is, and I'm, I'm also like you, I'm half glass, half full or completely full most times. Um, I, I was- Dustin, you were runneth over. It's not even, it's runneth over. <laughs> oh goodness. That means I was too intense when we talked the first time. <laughs> you got to know me too well. I, I would say, uh, I love your term at hope. One of the things that we've seen uh, research show recently is that it's almost physically impossible for a student or an adult to be depressed if they have hope, right? I think the challenge is, is that Think about the, the, the environment that your kids are coming from. Now throw a pandemic on top of that, mm. throw social media pressures on top of that that are very real. How do we give them real hope, not just pithy statement hope today? It's a great question. I think for all educators and, and parents alike, because right now parents are, are the educators at home as this pandemic rages, there's a reality that we have to understand that our children have Zoom fatigue. You know, when, when schools were um, created in our country, it wasn't, you know, sedentary looking at a computer screen f- five to eight hours a day. Um, and so what we know th- about mental health parity and even looking deeper into social emotional learning is that there's a lot of anxiety and depression and kids are falling down a rabbit hole Um, because when you're present in a classroom and a teacher can look at you and acknowledge you and 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 you can participate by that nod or that gesture or that glance online a lot of kids don't even turn on their cameras and so we don't really know what they're doing behind that screen Um, are they listening are they playing Fortnite? Um, are they still in bed, um, you know, with the covers over their head? We, we don't always know. So it's a really challenging time right now. And I feel for all teachers who are empaths and who are extroverted and, and need that, that ability to uh, touch and feel their students as, as are you, Dustin. So it's, it's been a strange time and we're all acclimating. I just think it's sad for the kids that don't have hope, they are sinking into uh, the throes of depression. And that makes me really sad. So when that happens, I mean, again, I'm not, none of us have the answer. If we did, we'd be solving a lot of the world's problems currently. But what are, what are ideas that you've heard? You talk to a lot of educators, you're around a lot of folks who are thought leaders. What, what are things teachers can be doing in this Zoom fatigue world that is so real, in this disconnected world that is so painful? What are things that teachers can do right now to do their best to try to just break the mold somehow for the, the kids so that they can live truly at hope as best as possible? You know, I'm, I've been really blessed to, to, to be continue teaching during the pandemic. And so we've got several different programs I've been working with. Um, and, and one was a, a program by choice where we are working with uh, 10 year olds through 13 year olds who are in the foster care system. And I cry every single day. And oftentimes I cry every single day in their presence. Um, the things that are said by these children who are unfortunately part of that digital divide. When we started this program with them, the majority of those students didn't even have a computer. 
to even go to school. So we were like fundraising to try to get these kids computers. Um, some of the kids in this program had to walk three miles to the closest Starbucks because they didn't have Wi-Fi in their home. Um, there were daily decisions made by parents in a pandemic, that existential crisis of, do I pay for Wi-Fi, keep a roof over our head? Um, food, you know, for a lot of kids, if, if they are vulnerable or in a Title I school, the only food they may have is that, that free and reduced breakfast and or lunch. What happens at night and weekends and holidays? So there's a lot of extra things that are kind of being thrown into uh, a student's life in the midst of this pandemic. So I think for me, as I did in my classroom was in our room 203, which, which was my standard classroom, we, we kind of took the term Zoom 203, that in Zoom 203, we're gonna create some norms. And cameras were one of them. You know, early on, I said, I, I need to see every single one of you. I need it. You know, that's, that's my role because I want to have that glance and that nod and that acknowledgement. I want you to be active in the chat room. I need that. So I was trying to explain to my students, these are the things that I need. And I didn't, I didn't realize setting those norms at the beginning were so important because what I was really trying to do is, is hold those kids accountable. I, I wanted them there. I wanted them present. Um, there was a little boy who broke my heart on our very first day with our very first assignment. Um, they were gonna do a writing reflection and it was based on the theme resilience. And this little boy wrote in the chat room, the, the question was, where do you see yourself in 10 years? You know, kind of, kind of innocuous, kind of fun and aspirational. He is 10, about to turn 11 and I'm looking at the chat room, waiting to see what everybody's writing. And of course, they all had, you know, these aspirations of, of, of future careers or, um, you know, icons in pop culture. And little Howard wrote in all caps, four letters, D-E-A-D, -E -D. Mm. dead. And Dustin, I kid you not, I just broke into tears. And I thought, I have to stop everything to start everything. How do I address this? That a little boy at 10 years old could not only feel that, but with all of us being present and, and to witness as he's bearing his soul, how devastating that is. And I said, you, you give me 10 weeks. One of the most beautiful things at the end of this uh, semester was he was the first one to raise his hand. He was the first one to write in the chat room. He was the first one to write a manifesto when we had writing reflections. And as we were breaking for, for Christmas, um, he wanted to share something that was so beautiful. You know, as someone who is a, a foster kid, you, you don't often get something that is new, that is your own. And we were gonna do a, a, a holiday exchange where we had gotten things donated for these kids that they could actually open up that, that, were, that were for them. And Howard wanted everyone to know that he was going to go to a shelter on Christmas and help cook. He's, you know, he's about 40 pounds soaking wet. So he's, he's a tiny little boy, um, but he wanted to cook because he knew what it was like to be homeless and hungry and he didn't want somebody else to feel the way he used to feel. And in the care package that we gave him, um, most of the presents we gave him, he wanted to pay forward. Um, one, of the, one of the bundles was simply a pair of socks. And he said, you know, there's gotta be somebody at the shelter who has cold feet. So I'm, I'm gonna donate my socks. And I thought that's the, the power of education, that we can make things more noble and fair and just, just by being present and just by being intentional. And oftentimes holding our kids accountable and saying D-E-A-D is not acceptable to me because you matter. And I think that for all of us and our struggles, and the struggle is real. I don't want to minimize the struggle for all of us 
in this space that is is weird and wacky every moment of every day. You know, the, this new normal is anything but but normal. Um, we still can see our kids. We still can hear their their cries for help. And I think a lot of our kids just need to know and to be reassured that those cries for help are not falling on deaf ears. Yeah, I think, I mean, you just said it, show up, right? Like when you show up, don't just show up to the job, show up and be present, which means you're there, game on, switch, we're here, I'm looking for every student. And to your point, I think there's a lot of teachers, including myself, if that happened in the room, if I'm physically in there, I feel I've got this courage, conviction, and presence to know to call it out. Yeah. But you've got to you've got to have yourself even more prepared in a Zoom environment to look for those things and dive right into them because it's really easy for us to like, oh, the the chat box went past. Okay, I'm moving on, next thing. Uh, and so I, I really think that's, that's encouraging. And I think one of the things that inspired me about your story and your student story early on when I was getting into teaching was the importance of building genuine relationships, really getting to know kids and trying to see the world from their eyes. Do you have any insights of how teachers can do it right now in the midst of this second semester or uh, as we we stay in a, a, a Zoom environment for much longer, like how how can we try to build those? What are some ideas that we can do right now? You know, I'm a I'm a big fan of of bringing in different learning modalities. You know, for auditory listeners or people who are kinesthetic or people who are visual, which is a little bit difficult in the Zoom environment. So a lot of the things that I did in room 203 would have been considered a little crazy. You know, freedom writers are always saying, "Oh God, there she goes again." And we've had to learn to adapt in our little Zoom 203. I, I think one of the funnest things we did, you know, oftentimes we've we played the line game. And it was just a way for me to really get people to stand up and be seen and, and to be part of something where they're not suffering in silence. So obviously in Zoom, you you can't um, walk to a piece of tape in the center of the ground. So we came up with a way to adapt the line game. Um, and everybody had to go and get their favorite sneaker or slipper. I'm going to show you mine. I had on my little Nikes. And what I would say is we're going to hold up our shoes. So I'm going to ask the question. And instead of standing in the line, everybody's got to hold up their shoe. And it was amazing because it was kinesthetic. Everyone's camera was on. And every time there was that shoe in the shot, for something profound, um, it was an acknowledgement. And we could actually, just like you were holding it, um, it was amazing because we did have some of those kids that were embarrassed that they didn't have the designer shoes or there was kids that were wearing their slippers, but you know, it, there was something about the physicality. So I think we just have to take our tried and true things that used to work when we were standing in front of a chalkboard or a, a whiteboard and adapt them. And, and that's some of the things that I've learned is, you know, I would have never thought about holding up a, a stinky shoe, but the stinky shoe worked in that case. So I think we've got to be clever. Um, I think in our vulnerability, it's okay to fail sometimes. I mean, some of the lesson plans might fall flat on our face, um, but get back in there the very next day and, and adapt. And I, I think you mentioned earlier this idea that life is messy. Well, you know, teaching is messy. Our, our, our kids are messy. The world is pretty messy right now. And, and that's, that's now okay to acknowledge, even with your students. Um, I think sometimes if they know that you're fallible, um, that actually might make you more human to them. Oh, I agree. And I, I really like how you talked about being really honest with your students about who you are, what you're about, and your shortcomings, which I think help them, especially the older kids. But I think it applies to, to younger kids as well. Um, it's funny, you're talking about get the shoe. You know, I have a, my oldest son is a, a seven year old. And so I don't know if this applies to everybody. But uh, there was one day he had a Zoom uh, call and he was asked to go get something for show and share. I wish I could remember the object, but he comes back, shares it. I was not in the room, but 
at night, I mean, I guess I was over there. I could kind of hear, I didn't really wasn't paying attention, but at night at the dinner table, he was telling me, Miss Brady asked me for this thing. She asked all 25 kids, but he thinks she asked me and I got to show off to all my friends this thing. And so to your point, that little exercise made him feel known for a brief moment and in a way that I wouldn't have assumed would be as powerful as it actually is. So, you know, whether it's shoes or whatever object, I do think there's power to that. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think as you're talking, one of the challenges, you know, every teacher, every educator has ever been a teacher has those days where they have been up all night before, so excited for the lesson plan, bragging to anybody who wants to hear it about how great this lesson plan is going to go the next day. And it has bombed like, like, and it's like, you want to go cry like by midday. Like for me, I taught high school. So we had like 7am and that first group was still asleep on me. So then I was like, okay, I'll give them that excuse. But by lunchtime, you learn that your lesson plan was not as great as you thought it was. I would say, the thing that would help me on those days get over the hump is to your point showing up, I would go to the cafeteria, I would go to kids study halls, I would try to figure out a way to have some sort of outside the classroom personal experience with the kid that I know I made an impact on that day. So that would personally fill my bucket. I don't know, I've got ideas, but I wonder if you have any ideas that you work with lots of teachers of if they don't have that access right now to be able to pop in, what are some ways that teachers can remind themselves that even if your lesson plan failed today, life is okay. You're going to be great tomorrow and you are making phenomenal differences in the lives of the kids you're serving. Well, hopefully it's you, Dustin. Hopefully it's your your words of wisdom. And I, I don't say that facetiously. I, I think that we as educators have to seek out like-minded people. Um, because when you're a teacher in Zoom, it's a it's a very lonely, isolated moment because it's it's you're autonomous. You're you do, you don't have um, other colleagues with you at that moment, and so I th- I think it's really important to have those that elevate us that we can collaborate with and and have that constructive criticism. And I think that's one of the hardest things about social isolation is not having that that simple banter like you mentioned in the cafeteria or while you're Xeroxing your assignment. So I think now is the time that we have to seek it out, whether it is a, you know, a podcast that makes you cry and or laugh or something that 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 feeds your soul. And I, I think that it's really important for your listeners to seek it. Yeah, I think so one of the the areas that I don't think I was that great. I mean, you inspired me to consider it. I, let's say you were an A, I was probably a D minus, even if I wanted to be better, um, was kind of building and creating a family environment. Can you, for our listeners, describe just a few of the uh, building blocks of building a family environment in your classroom, and then kind of expound upon in today's world, how could you adjust amend some of those to try to create a family? We're halfway into the year. You know, we can't go backwards, but what can we do now to build that family environment uh, within our classroom? You know, I, I think if someone was to take a snapshot of our, our first day of class, um, it was a very racially divided community and kids sat in their comfort zones. And, and tragically, then it was based on the side of the street they came from, the the gang posture clique they were in, the the color of their skin. So it was a very tense, racially divided classroom. Before the bell rang on that, that very first day, the arc that we had was that we did become a family and kind of our tagline became, family is what we choose and family is what we make. And that's tough when a lot of these kids came from very dysfunctional families. So we had to really model what what does a healthy family look like? What what is what does unconditional love feel like when everything has been conditional? And so just like I do in Zoom, we we had to establish some norms. We had to make it this this is a hate-free zone. We have to agree to disagree. You know, we there are principles and morals that we have to uphold. Um, 
And when the Freedom Writers came up with the idea of being Freedom Writers based on those civil rights icons, Freedom Writers, there was something very empowering for them to look at these, these young people who got on a bus in the 1960s and, and rode through a very segregated South and kept going, even though there was an angry mob, even though there was Molotov cocktails thrown at a bus, what, what would be their moral compass to keep going? And so for the Freedom Riders, it was like, how do we emulate that? How do we become family for one another? And all these years later, a lot of people are always intrigued, like, do you still see the Freedom Riders? And it's daily. We do a Freedom Rider Zoom every Thursday. It's hysterical. And I want this is not hyperbole. Last Thursday's Freedom Rider Zoom was from six o'clock to eight o'clock. Everyone had their dinner. Everyone's laughing. Eight o'clock, I got to feed my dog. Eight o'clock, I got to go home and put on my pajamas because I was still at the office. And so I allowed one of the Freedom Riders to become the co-host. My Freedom Riders, the family is what you choose. Family is what you make. Stayed on our Freedom Rider Zoom till one o'clock in the morning on a school night. It was a Thursday and they have kids and they got to get for the next day. And that to me is family. You know, you stay up too late. You laugh um, at each other's jokes. You call each other out. So along with the academic stuff that was created was also that, that folksy feeling of, we're going to be there for each other because it is tough and we're going to make fun of each other in a loving way, not a, a disrespectful way. And, you know, time, sometimes you, you can bend the rules if, you know, I, I don't begrudge them stayed on till one o'clock in the morning on a school night because they all needed it, it was uh, the same time frame that you and I had spoken last week after what happened in Washington, D.C., and the Freedom Riders just had to process it. They had they had been to Washington, D.C. on a field trip and they were feeling tender and they were feeling nostalgic. And they just had learned in Room 203, when we have these feelings, we just have an opportunity to talk and, and everybody gets a turn. So I think it's really important for all of us as educators to create those really safe environments where people feel there is unconditional love, that that the compassion and empathy from each and every teacher who is in your audience exudes, even if it's on a screen, coming from a box in a computer and allowing kids, if they need to linger once the class is over, that that teacher is still there for them. And I know that you did that as a teacher then, and you do that for your audience now. You, you get to be the teacher and subsequently, we get to be your students. Hmm. I, you know, when you talk, I just, uh, connecting with people, listening to people, having them be truly known. One of the things, and I, I, I don't know if it was from you, but like when I was getting ready to be a teacher and I realized I have no clue what I'm doing, uh, I get introduced to uh, this exercise called a life map. Have you, are you familiar with these? I don't think mm -hmm. they're like, so every one of my students, again, I wasn't great at building the family like you, but to your point of it's genuine relationships first, I wanted my kids to be known, like fully known, because I think everybody's goal is to be fully known and in a safe place to be honored. And so what I did was I drew a picture that had different parts of my life map. It was like Disney World. I was born in Orlando. It was... Uh, when I was three, my parents got divorced. So it was like a heartbreak break and all that. It was, you know, just all these different things that were positive, right? Cause I've got four great parents now at the time that hurt. Um, and then I wrote a story about it and I taught high school math. So like I took a day to do these life maps because I believe that day would give me so much more time later to be mm. able to go build relationships. And what I, and I it always ended with what's your big goal? What's your, what's your heart? Like, where do you want to be? Right. Um, and so uh, what, what's funny is that what I noticed is kids who were not engaged in my subject prior to that got engaged at first in me because they knew I wanted to know them. So they liked that project and then into the subject. Is that something that you've noticed in your career? Forget life maps being the end all be all, but exercises like that so that they are fully known. Do you find that to be a, a real key gateway to getting kids invested in whatever you're teaching? 
absolutely. There was a, a card that one of my students gave me and it said, you may be one person in the world, but you may be the world to one person. And I'll never forget. I don't know who came up with that cliche, but I, I love the singularity of that, that, that for some kids, that teacher is their world. And I think that they need to know that you care. And so they'll, they'll remember the teacher. They might not always remember the lesson or the subject. And so I'm sure for you, Dustin, you are so charismatic and you are so caring and ultimately so compassionate that kids probably who were afraid of math probably embraced math because you made it feel less scary. And I think the same thing for me, I was on the other side of the brain. I was, you know, the English teacher, but, you know, I actually had a lot of kids who had learning disabilities. So when you're dyslexic, whether you had had that diagnosed or not, or you have an IEP and have been diagnosed as some kind of special ed, the idea of writing is a, is a terrifying feeling. You know, that's, they, they have envisioned of a teacher taking out a red pen and bleeding all over their paper. So I think for both of us, we have subject matters, especially in high school, that can be very daunting and scary to a kid who hasn't mastered it by the time they had our class. And I think it's really about allowing kids to take risks, um, to make those subject matters feel relevant in the world, that like when the bell rings and the, the test is over, you're still gonna need to use math for the rest of your life you're still gonna to need to use writing and reading for the rest of your life. So I think it's really making students understand the, the why. why. Why am I having to read this or write this or this crazy quadratic equation? So I, I think that, that it's students who ended up feeling seen and heard probably did better in your class because you made them feel that they could. At the end of about every podcast I have, I ask every guest for any listener, whether it's a teacher, whether it's an administrator, district administrator, non-teacher, uh, from your vantage point, what you see in the world right now and the strong held convictions and beliefs that have made you, you and inspire so many people, what is one step? What's one small change that we can start making right now that you think will lead to big big changes and big ripples later? Mm. Depending on when this is out in the world, on uh, the day that we did this interview uh, in our nation's capital, our, our policymakers have gathered to make some really tough decisions. And I think for, for those of us that don't have power um, and, and are, are not driven by policy. It's a, it's a very surreal time. You know, the, the whole world is watching. And I, I think for me, um, my students and I were very blessed to, to look up to this group of, of civil rights icons named Freedom Writers. And, and one of which was the boy from Troy. His name was, you know, John Lewis then. And he was the son of a sharecropper. And, you know, we all know him now of, as that boy who walked across that bridge in Selma, stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and became a Congressman um, and, and may he rest in peace. But when the Freedom Writers met him face to face um, to declare like, you're our namesake, you know, we chose Freedom Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R -E in honor of you, R-I-D-E-R. And John Lewis told my students about this concept of getting into good trouble. And he explained all the ways in which he did get into good trouble. You know, even though he was pummeled on Bloody Sunday on that bridge in Selma or had been arrested over 40 times, you know, in his mind, there would be another arrest. There would be another cause for him to stand up. And the idea for him of, of good trouble was how do we as citizens, citizens of the world, stand up, speak up, and then speak out? That was a really harrowing moment for me because a lot of my students in the urban community in which they grew up, there were these codes of silence. You, you suffer in silence, you, you suppress. 
Um, you don't rat or snitch. Snitches get stitches. So this idea that I didn't see it, I can't say anything, was something that had been indoctrinated in their homes. And here was this icon saying, no, you have to stand up. You have to speak up. And most importantly, you have to speak out. And I think that was a an amazing moment for me to just witness the, 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 you know, the imaginary light bulb going on for my students of that power and, and that solidarity that, that I, that I can stand up and then I can say something. So I think for anyone that is listening, whether they are a tried and true teacher or a parent in the midst of a pandemic, taking care of kids and being that teacher by de facto, it's a, it's a very important time for all of us to use our voice at a time that we feel the most voiceless, you know, right? People feel very invisible now and, and downtrodden. But if we can elevate ourselves and elevate others, and that elevation could simply be your household or those that you see in Zoom every day, that's, that's an amazing attribute that we, like John Lewis, could, could stand up and speak up and speak out in the moment um, because it is the right thing to do. And, you know, I'm still learning how to do that. That doesn't always come naturally and automatic, um, but I'm, I'm learning to follow in his footsteps. And I hope, I hope someday that it, it's second nature. Yeah, I like the idea of good trouble. Um, you know, Aaron, again, you were a part of my story before we ever met, which I feel so thankful and uh, your biggest mistake was giving me your cell phone number. <laughs> Please use it and often. <laughs> You're going to have to hear from me way too often now. Uh, you may get to meet my kids in that process. Um, you inspired me to become a teacher. You've inspired probably thousands, thousands of other people to be a teacher, to stay in teaching, to stay, become a principal, to become a district administrator, to go into public service, to create policies that enable kids. Um, I believe today you're spending much of your time, a good bit of your time on your foundation to do similar work. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and what's the, the big work that you guys are working on right now? So the Freedom Riders and I were not ready or willing to cut the umbilical cord. You know, there was this hermetically sealed moment of, you know, I, I was blessed to have students in a cocoon, you know, for the lack of a better term, they were in room 203, their freshman year through their senior. And in, in that space, um, there was a lot of healing and there was a lot of hope. When they graduated, there was this feeling of, I'm, I'm not ready to use my wings to fly. And ultimately we want all of our kids to not only use their wings to fly, but hopefully to soar. And you know, if we did our job right, they're like a homing pigeon and they'll come home to roost. So the, the Freedom Riders have come home to roost. They have helped me create a foundation uh, with the sole purpose of, of paying it forward um, through education. You know, how, how do we strive for equity? How, how do we make education relevant and real for every kid? Um, regardless, as you said earlier, their zip code. And so we've just tried to figure out ways in which to do that. You know, the first was our, our book, the Freedom Riders Diary. And through the years, we've we've come back to it. We wrote the original book in the classroom. We re-released it on its 10th anniversary with new stories. And just recently, we had our 20th anniversary with 20 new stories, um, which was very exciting to put that back out in the world. We were, were blessed to have our story told both in a film and also in a documentary, which was you know, a way to put faces and names to the story. It's, it's always hard when I do meet young kids because I think they, they're disappointed. I think they think they're going to meet Hillary Swank, who they assume is going to be much younger and cooler. And I'm like the letdown. Um, but at least, it'll, it, you know, it's, it's streaming and it's, in, it's in places that I never would have envisioned it being. But I think the thing that we are most proud of now is creating things specifically during this pandemic that deal with mental health and deal with social emotional learning through our stories um, and having courageous conversation about what does depression look like? 
what does anxiety feel like? Um, how can we have conversations in our Zoom about that? And so our, our foundation is really just that, um, trying to make things um, feel, feel good for everybody, because I, I do think that education is the best equalizer. And as you and I know, Dustin, it's, it's not equal. It's, it's not fair. But if we can do our, our small part through a podcast or through an exercise or a book. And so that's what we're humbly trying to do. And it's hard now because we're reminded how, how there is a divide. And um, the bigger the divide, the harder we just have to work. So Aaron, if I know I can go right now to Amazon Prime and pull up your movie, Freedom Riders. You can easily go, and I'm not, this isn't a plug for anywhere you can get, but you can go anywhere and find your books that you've mentioned uh, to get inspired. If you guys have not read books or seen the movie, do so immediately. But then after, or even right now, if you have, where can any of us go to join you and your Freedom Riders and spreading the passion for serving folks to spreading the passion to unleashing greatness in kids everywhere. Wow, well, thank you. Um, we have a, a website, um, we're the Freedom Riders Foundation.org. And so if, if a teacher wanted more, these are some of the, the fun things that Freedom Riders thought were necessary to do. Um, like you, they have dabbled in the world of podcast and which is really exciting. We've I'm terrified of rejection. So the the art of asking somebody, will you be our guest, terrifies me. I'm I'm constantly afraid that they're going to say no. And then when they do say no, I take it personally. But we we have been very blessed to interview authors and and activists and and people who, to us, have really gone the extra mile. I think one of my favorite podcasts that we were able to accomplish was interviewing John Lewis before he passed. I mean, that was a really special moment and having the Freedom Riders pay homage to him. So Freedom Riders have created a podcast that they're very proud of. Freedom Riders have created opportunities to do Zooms with schools. Um, I watch them from afar. I'll sit in the corner of the room and give them a little bit of space. I'm like a showbiz mom who's just like, look at my kids and weep the entire time. But Freedom Riders, to a student are like a Justin Bieber. You know, kids can't believe, you know, they've aged, they've, they've, they've been a part of this family, but a freedom I will sit down, look at a street, a screen to a class full of kids. And within seven minutes, everyone's crying. It's, it's remarkable. It's uncanny. And it's every single time. I just, I'm in awe at how earnest they are. I'm in awe at how transparent they are. So if, if a teacher is struggling and just wants to have a freedom writer, you know, parachute into a Zoom, it's something that's so special because my hope is that a kid could look and say, I look like him or I, I talk like her and maybe I too can make it to the other side. And so that's, those are the things that freedom writers have felt really important. Um, we are, we're also making curriculum and, and that's, um, been an exercise for me. It's really creative. It's like boiling noodles and throwing it on the wall and seeing what sticks. But we're, we're trying to make things that we think is, is gritty enough to speak to a kid and, and to shake them at their core. Um, because we kind of gravitate to the kids who are, are on the fringe who are about to drop out, uh, the kid who is incarcerated. So before the pandemic, it was not uncommon to find us hanging out in a jail cell with kids. We spent a lot of time with incarcerated youth and that's been hard in the pandemic because of COVID lockdowns, we haven't had access. So in lieu of having that physicality of, of being with incarcerated youth, how could we create curriculum that at least could beam into their makeshift school in that jail cell? And, and that's, um, been a beautiful journey of, of trying to make something that allows somebody to, to want to do something. Um, I think one of the most beautiful moments, you know, we, it's a nonprofit. So we, we sing for our supper and there was a day that I just, 
I wasn't even sure if we were going to be able to, to pay rent. I had, I had taken myself off salary. I'm like rolling up coins in the sofa. I mean, it was, it was a tough month. And we got a handwritten letter from an inmate at Attica State Prison with a, with a $5 check. And I, I don't even know what this inmate did to send us $5. Um, but the letter slayed me. And it talked about if I had a class like yours, I, I wouldn't be here. And on that moment, I thought, we're going to make it. We're going to make it because in that weird moment, I realized that that $5 meant more than any check from some techie billionaire or some, some that, that to me was what was larger than life. And so I think um, I just feel like I'm a cheerleader when these Freedom Riders come up with these crazy ideas. Uh, I just better say yes and get out of the way and, and let Freedom Riders make the magic. So if you're out there listening uh, and you want to get off the sidelines, go look into the Freedom Riders Foundation and get off the sidelines and see how you can make a difference across the world with Aaron. I appreciate Aaron. This is awesome. And it was very encouraging for folks. Thanks for your time. Again, thanks for bringing your whole heart and your head into this. Um, I hope you have a great day and I hope everybody enjoyed listening. Talk to you later. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.